The John of All Trades Podcast is a part of the Denver Podcast Network. In the shadow of the mountains, we, we speak. speak. You have all made it to the dance. You have all made it, made it, Coming to you from the X-Access, it's John of All Trades with your host, John X. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the John of All Trades podcast, episode 153. I'm your host, John X. Thank you for joining us. Glad to have you back once again at the Denver Film Festival. That's right. We've got a slate of shows coming from the Denver Film Fest, DFF 40. Very, very exciting. It's my third year doing the Denver Film Fest, and I'd like to first give a quick shout out to Neil Trulio, who always hooks me up with great guests. He is the press contact there. I've had him on my show before talking about his work. Modest Arts is his other gig doing theater productions with youth, with high school kids, college kids. It's fantastic. Neil is just an amazing guy, a talented professional and a great creative and someone I'm proud to collaborate with on the Denver Film Fest each year. And to get us started, he got me a fantastic guest. Episode 153, our guest is Andrew Novick. Now, Andrew... If you were to Google Andrew Novick, and he says this in the episode, he's not the urologist, he's not this one other guy who sometimes press hits come up about, but virtually everything else is going to be him. He works on the atomic clock in Boulder. He's had a pop-up ramen shop. He's had an art show featuring models with their own blood. He's a collector of random stuff, and we talk about that in the show. He's got tons and tons of stuff, and among that is Jean-Benet Ramsey's tricycle. That's right, Jean-Benet's tricycle. And it's interesting when you say Jean-Benet's trike. In Colorado particularly, I don't know if this is true in other parts of the country. I know this case 20 years ago really captivated the nation. But here in Colorado, we got overdosed on Jean-Benet coverage. So when I told my wife and I told my mom who I was interviewing, they said, you're doing Denver Film Fest again? That's cool. Who are you talking to? And I said, he's the director of Jean Benet's Tricycle. And they immediately sort of recoiled. They go, ooh, oh, I, that, that sounds, that makes me feel icky inside. Because of what we know about that case filtered through the nonstop media fire hose that we endured 20 years ago and that has come up again. I mean, the 20-year anniversary, news organizations looking for coverage, of course they're going to come back to this. And so he came in possession of Jean Benet's Tricycle and he made a documentary about it. He takes it to some psychics to see if he can glean any additional info about it. Maybe there's a new angle here. Maybe the psychics can discern something. I don't know if you believe in psychics or not. I'm certainly skeptical about them. But hey, why not? Let's find out, right? We revisit the case. We revisit some of the theories. And it's an interesting story. If it were focused solely on John Bonet alone, it would be a fascinating enough documentary. But Andrew himself is, I would argue, at least equally fascinating to JonBenet Ramsey and the case. And it's for some of the reasons that we covered already. His collections, his, all the things that he's been involved with. He started something called Kill Yourself Incorporated, and we talk about it in this week's episode. He was in a band called the Warlock Pinchers. And so filtering this story through Andrew, who was both director and subject of this movie makes for a very entertaining watch, and something that probably beckons more than one time watching it. I know I'm certainly going to revisit it, so go to johnofalltrades.us. There will be a link there to the Jean Benet's Tricycle website. There will be links to what Andrew does, 
and all the ways you can keep up with him because you can bet he's always going to be doing something interesting and something different, something varied. J-O-N of all trades dot U-S. That is the homepage for John of all trades. You can see all 150 plus of our back episodes. We've got episodes from DFF 39 and DFF 38, and there's more coming from DFF 40. I've already got another one in the can that you are going to love. That's coming out Friday, so we're doing two this week. The one today, and then one two days from now, and I guarantee you, if you like this one, you're going to love the one on Friday. And if you're a fan of my show, you will probably recognize the guest. That's all I'll say for now. But get excited for that. First, a little bit of business to take care of. Since we're talking about a documentary, and a documentary captures history, and it talks about things in the moment, let's talk about another show on the Denver Podcast Network. That's The Revisionists. Brian Flynn is the host there. He's someone that I have met and interviewed as part of our live launch showcase. And you know what? I'll let him tell you about his show. So take it away, Brian. Do you remember where you were when we elected a Sasquatch president? How about when you learned Ben Franklin was a robot? Or first heard Stalin's mixtape? I'm Zach Powers. I'm Brian Flynn, and we host The Revisionists. Each episode, one person explains real history and another tells an alternate version. And the winner becomes the truth. We let comics from Denver and around the country run wild through history. It's an in-depth look at history, but with more Babadooks. Check out The Revisionists, available every other Saturday. Wherever you get podcasts and at revisionistpodcast.com. You can find his show at the Denver Podcast Network. You can see all the shows that are a part of our great network on denverpodcast.net. All right, let's kick off our coverage from Denver Film Fest 40, DFF 40. Very excited to be a part of it once again. My guest is Andrew Novick. He is the director and the owner of Jean Bonnet's Tricycle, and his episode starts right now. Like, no one would move to Denver, right? Like, but yeah, now people are like, you're from here? Like, wow. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's, but yeah, I grew up on Hamden and Colorado Boulevard. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I know exactly where that is. There's like the golf course, yep. three churches, another church, and then like the, the neighborhood. Like, I'm in yeah. the neighborhood. So not far from the Continental Movie Theater. Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. We saw lots of stuff there and, um, and like the Cooper mm-hmm. Theater, you know, yeah. saw Star Wars there. <laughs> so, so. Are you in Boulder still? Um, so I still work in Boulder, okay. but I, I live back in Denver now. I went up to Boulder for school. Okay. Uh, and then I lived there kind of throughout the 90s and then okay. came back to. Did you go to CU? Yeah. Yeah, I went to CSU. Oh, wow. Okay. So yeah, uh, met my wife there. Uh, we both got both our degrees from there. But it's funny, in the film, you talk about, uh, like, you criticize Boulder in it. And the part of me that grew up here, I go, yeah, I know exactly what he's talking about. So that resonated with me. Yeah. And Boulder, I mean, Boulder was like a love-hate. It was like, you know, you go to Boulder and pe- it was a destination, right? Like people right. go to Boulder for the mall crawl and people, you know, I had been there for a couple concerts. I sure. saw Cindy Lauper there and the nice. Thompson Twins, you know, in the 80s. At what, the Fox? Um, no, Thompson Twins were at Mackey. Oh, okay. It was great. Oh, yeah. great show. Cindy Lauper was at the... Um, CU Event Center or whatever. Okay. Um, saw a couple other, saw men at work at the CU Event Center, you know, like the 80s <laughs> concerts. But, um, but I, I was like, Boulder's like, why would you want to go to Boulder for the night? You know, like I was like, this is, you know, but then I lived up there and I went to Denver like all the time. Right. And just like kind of hated Boulder in a lot of ways. But then Boulder now is like much different than it was back then. I, I feel like we kind of missed out on 
realizing because mm. there was like punk rock shows and right. a lot of you know just uh, everyone's hanging around everyone's doing creative stuff so like i i, I mean i i enjoyed my time in boulder but i don't know what goes on there now i have no idea i spend about four hours a year in boulder before i kind of <laughs> exactly, get annoyed with it exactly <laughs> which uh that's about my ceiling in terms of time spent in Boulder, yeah, but uh, it's just it's it's a weird town, man. But uh, you mentioned punk rock, uh, Warlock Pinchers. I grew up loving punk rock too. I got into punk rock like in high school, so I was later. I was like punk revival, you know, like nineties, face to face, strung out, no effects, that uh-huh. type of stuff. Uh, what were you into? Like, was punk your scene? I, I, you know, in high school, I was like kind of punk and new wave. Yeah, okay. And, and those were the it was the, that was the same scene because it was really small. Yeah, you know, in like. 1984, like the punk rockers and the new wavers and the skateboarders were all one scene because it was right. like, you know, and so I was like kind of punk rock, new wave and, you know, listen to the damned and the clash and, yeah. and, you know, Howard Jones and the Thompson twins. So, you know, <laughs> it was, it definitely was, you know, Susie and the Banshees was kind of like my oh, middle cool, ground yeah. for, you know, that kind of scene and went to lots of punk rock shows and, yeah. um, just music in general too. And, just really thrived with that scene. Well, I know when I was like, when I, when I got into punk rock, one of the hard things about it was it's almost like there's a mentality in the culture or in the subculture that says you should hate everything else, which I is really limiting. And it wasn't until I was in my twenties that I really started opening up and I found all this stuff that I had missed while I was just thoroughly immersed in the punk rock scene. Wow. And so that that was frustrating to me because it's like, man, there was so much great stuff out there that I just irrationally closed myself off to and I don't know why. Wow. It's, yeah, I would I definitely cross I've always crossed a lot of lines, you know, like yeah. even in high school, you know, I I I know a lot of the super smart people and I know the the subculture groups that hang yeah. around. I I you know, I didn't really fit in any category, really, which I still kind of, you know, and even like our band, we're like pinchers, like even though we played punk rock shows and stuff, but like we didn't fit in any category. I mean, we had a right. drum machine, you know, no, no, no sound guy knew anything how to run a drum machine, you know, like how, to, how do you, what do you do with this drum machine in yeah. the house, you know? So like we were fighting against our own genre really of sure. you know, trying to figure out which works fine because you really stand out then. Oh, know? yeah. Yeah, but it's hard to pigeonhole you. I have that uh, with this show. It's like, what's your show about? I go, I talk to people from all across the employment spectrum. So it's like, if you like this episode with this Wall Street guy, you'll also like this one with this tattoo artist. And people go, uh, okay. And it's like, you have to, I don't know, you, you have to find the red thread that connects them. And that's not easy for everyone. People like classifications and you kind of defy that. Is that ever isolating or challenging for you or do you view it differently? I think it's a welcome challenge, really. Right. Like I do something and, you know, it's like I'm not an artist, but I'm doing an art show. And then I do, you know, I make a spectacle out of it and I, you know, cause a scene and then I get media attention because I'm not playing by the same rules. And I'm I'm a self-promoter. You know, I've always... You know, I've had like weird businesses and, you know, taught myself to screen print in high school. And um, so I've always kind of marketed whatever I'm doing. So like, yeah, if I'm doing an art show, like I'm out handing out flyers for it. And like artists, a lot of artists don't want to, they feel weird about self-promotion. You know, it's like, well, who else is going to do it for you? So, yeah, so I think it's a welcome challenge. It's like I can get into some, I'm going to have a... Oh, you know, like a pop-up ramen shop. Right? Yeah. Like no one knows me as like a ramen chef in town. So I got to, I got to go tell, you know, I got to go talk about it. Well, it's funny. This is Andrew Novick, the director and uh, owner of John mm-hmm. Bonet's tricycle. And approaching this interview has proved challenging to me because in terms of the film, 
you as a framing device, you have a woman interviewing you and she ends up asking a lot of the questions that I would have asked you had they not been in the film. So as I'm looking at it, I go, how do I ask him these things when they're already tackled in the film? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, because the press hits that you have, if, if you Google your name, you will get so many different types of things. You're like, are we talking about the same guy? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not the urologist who publishes like a lot of papers on urology because I have like a Google word, po- you know, right. like, and I'm like, that's not me. And there's also a famous uh, snow- sailboarder. Right. Not me. But pretty much everyone else that you come up with is me. So. Yeah. Like the pop-up ramen thing you brought up. Uh, the collector of all sorts of different things. Jean Monnet's tricycle. Um, working on the atomic clock. There's so much there. And you go, how are all these things connected? And so I was going to bring that fact up. But then you have a guy like right at the beginning of the movie who brings all that up too. Yeah. And so I go, wow, okay. So this is putting me in in an odd place just as an interviewer. And I think that's really cool because that doesn't always happen to me. A lot of folks I talk to don't have a ton of press hits. So there's a lot of like tillable earth there. But in terms of you, you've you've covered so many different things through so many different lenses that it's a unique challenge for me, which is something I appreciate. So it's it's a pleasure to get to sit down with you. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> I uh, I did I watched the movie Jean Bonnet's Tricycle, and when I was approached about doing Denver Film Fest forty again, uh, so this is my third year doing the Film Fest. <laughs> I looked at the title and I go, oh, okay, what's this about? And I watched the film, and it wasn't exactly as I expected. But I told the title to both my wife and my mom. And I said, they're like, who are you interviewing? And I go, Andrew Novick. He has this film called Jean Bonnet's Tricycle. And they both sort of visually recoiled, you know, because we're all from here. And we all lived through that. Yeah. And it's 20 years later. But you say the name Jean Bonnet, which is a very unusual name. Like, that's not a, that's a name you associate with one person. And... They sort of go, oh, uh-oh, like, what's this about? And it feels very scandalous, you know? It feels very sort of almost uncomfortable. Is that a reaction you get a lot? Uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's like – and, I mean, also kind of with intention, right? Like, yeah. how are you supposed to have this quirky kind of pop culture mm-hmm. movie about something so serious, right? And yeah. so I think it's just kind of part of – it's kind of part of it. It's like you get the recoil, and then hopefully you can reel it back in yeah. and be like – no, you should really check this out because it's not what you think, you know, and it's not – I mean there's, there was a lot of stuff that came out for the 20th anniversary. There's been media for 20 years. Oh, you know? yeah. Um, and it's – a lot of it's the same, you know, same stuff we've read in the tabloids and right. that kind of stuff. So this is very different, but it's hard to really pitch that as like not just another story about <laughs> John Bonet, which you're solely sick of by now. But I think – I mean I, I think it really – is an interesting take and so kind of what we did when um last fall had just started filming and filmed all the stuff with the psychics before even telling anybody anything because i didn't want psychics to know what i was doing yeah you didn't want them to find out like yeah yeah so we just started shooting psychics and then once we had that so we already had footage Uh from the movie and then i did that interview with the woman and that's like an old old friend of mine and she and i when we get together she lives out of state now when we get together we just talk for hours you know and just get caught up on everything and and she happened to be in town i was like 
oh, you would be the perfect interviewer because I tell you things that I don't ever really tell anyone. And I, you nice. know, she drags it out of me kind of, you know? <laughs> and so she's like um, a muse in that way. Oh yeah. Sense. She, yeah. yeah. She's a muse. I'm her muse. She's my muse. That's I mean, awesome. Cause she loves getting to the bottom of like what I'm up to, you know? <laughs> and so, yeah, so she asked, I mean, there was no script. There was no anything. We just talked and talked and talked. And then everything that needed to be said almost was said there. So how long was that interview that, that you guys were talking on camera? Uh, it was probably a couple of, Two, two hours, two and a wow, half hours. Okay. Yeah. And so we, yeah, we, so we covered a lot, you know, and, and, and the goal was just cover everything about me and my history and all the projects I've done. And then specifically about the trike and the reactions and the stuff. Yeah. So we already had this footage. So we cut together the a 10 minute short, mm-hmm. which played at Denver Film Fest last year. Yep. And that was good, a good vehicle for crowdfunding and to, for something for people to see, to get a gist of what the movie is like. And like, it's kind of about the makings and the beginnings of the making of the movie, where I pitch, I pitch it to my producer and friend, Teresa. I pitch it to my DP and just like, Hey, would you want to help me with this? Like, and they didn't know, I just filmed them. They didn't know what was <laughs> happening, you know, but it was also good because it was like, that's kind of part of the movie is like showing someone the trick that doesn't know what it is and then telling them. Or yeah. Whatever. So, you know, that, that kind of, gestalt's like boom here it is well the first time you mention it the woman who's interviewing you whose name is escaping me at the moment jessica jessica the first time you mention it you cut to a shot of her going hmm like like she reacts like pretty viscerally to it she's like you have what now (laughs) yeah and i i think she works as a nice surrogate for the audience because you hear jean bernay strike and i did this without realizing it when i told my wife and i told my mom they had the same reaction as her. So she's almost like our guide to understanding this. It's the frame through which we can sort of get a handle on what you're doing. Right. And also she, I mean, she laughs at some of the things I say that are funny and she's, you know, she's serious. And when, you know, when I talk about like the child who's murdered, I mean, she's, she is very caring and kind person. And she was, she was reacting very, I mean, she was just, that was, she was in it, you know? And I think, so I think that was great. Some people think that, you know, we had like a test audience screening. Oh, nice. And some people are like, oh, I don't know about that interviewer. She, she's, she's too much of a character. She's, mm-hmm. you know, she's, um, she's not an unbiased interviewer. You can tell like she's, she knows you and whatever. And I, and I was like, you know, if I made a non-typical documentary, then fine. I think I needed her there because she's, she, pulls things out of yeah. you know my past and things so i i definitely needed her plus you know when you have a a long interview and you're obviously cutting it you have to cut to something you know and so i thought cutting to her was great i really like it but yes i do was, too some people thought it was kind of a ping pong like back and forth conversation I mean, I'm not, you know, there again, I'm not a documentary filmmaker. I'm just a guy who does a lot of stuff. So if I, if I made a non-typical documentary, I would expect nothing less, you know. I think it's helpful tone-wise, though, because the easy rapport, because when you mention the subject matter, you, you maybe have an expectation, you know, because our experience with Jean Bonnet, Ramsey, has been framed through the Geraldo Rivera's of the world, right. you know? And so this is going to be a much different take. And when you have that friendly rapport with Jessica, it establishes up front. It's like, okay, this is going to be different. And that's really helpful because you, you could expect this to be almost like exploitive or macabre. And it's not either of those things at all in my estimation. 
it's a much more interesting like character snapshot of you using this as our means of understanding that. Is it fair to characterize it that way? I think that's a great description. And also, being the director of a movie that I'm also the subject <laughs> of, you know, cause, you know, if, if, if I make, if I'm gonna make a documentary about like a crazy guy in town, you know, that, I mean, that could be exploitative or whatever, and I'm gonna show his craziest sides. But it's okay, now I'm making a movie about myself, right? Yeah. And like, so, I definitely needed somebody to, cause I wasn't gonna just script me just talking and going, you know, yeah. I would be a robot. Just here's what I did in my life. Here's what I did with this movie. You know, it would be like right. I, I, it had to be a conversation, and that was the perfect way to do it. Well, yeah, you can't do it like Errol Morris style. You know, right? Like just you in the camera, especially with this subject matter, that would be almost like too intense. Yeah. You know, and so having this surrogate where where we get to understand it through Jessica, I think is really really good. Yeah. Um, once people have seen it, and once they get past sort of their initial reaction to Jean Benet's tricycle. Uh, what has the reaction been? Oh, it's, it's been great. I mean, obviously people, maybe if they hated it, they wouldn't tell me because they're right. friends or whatever. And this is, and it hasn't really premiered yet. So I haven't gotten feedback from the general public who some people right. are not going to like it for sure. But, but people who have seen it or seen the short, I mean, people are like, this is really fascinating. And the, mm-hmm. and the way, you know, these are things that we've heard of or not heard of. Some people are like, I didn't know about the, you know, the junkyard guy or the Santa Claus. I didn't yeah. realize all of his things. I tried to pull out some of those kind of underground, weird, circumstantial things that, you know, that I find interesting as like stepping way back and like just, well, the parents did it. So just forget about it. You know, it's like, right. I, I, I'm, I'm really interested in all the theories and people are very convinced of, that their theory is right. You know, whatever it may be. I think this is why this has captivated the public because there is no clean answer. Sometimes you want to think it's the parents. Sometimes you want to think it's her brother. Sometimes you want to think it's John Mark Carr. And you go, oh, my God, I forgot all the players here. And this is so complicated. And, you know, you've got Patsy Ramsey's sister moving evidence out of the house. And you go, what is happening with this thing? (laughs) So weird. (laughs) And I had forgotten this. And I had largely almost like willfully forgotten this because living in Colorado, you get inundated with the coverage so much. And have been, you know, with the Paula Woodwards of the world. And... You know, Geraldo set up shop and used to do shows every night. And one of the things that you put a lampshade on in this movie is <laughs> lead stories on the news would be that there was no news. I thought that was amazing. That's remarkable. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's almost uh, an oblique indictment of our entire news system. Because it's like, okay, well, this is clearly driving ratings. People want to hear about the Ramses and they want to hear about John Bonet. There's nothing to report, yet that's what they're reporting on. Yeah. How strange is that? It's so weird. It's so weird. And it, and if there's and if it is a light news day or whatever, I notice like nowadays, like it's just all weather. It's like they <laughs> it's like they talk about the weather before the news starts, the first five minutes, <laughs> five minutes later. Like it's like Really? There's nothing else happening out there? Like, yeah. we got the gist of the weather, folks. Like, what else, you know, is why, going on? Why do you have to dispatch reporters to highway on-ramps to tell us it's snowing? <laughs> yeah. Like, I, then they have the camera, too. Like, they don't need the person standing there because there's the camera showing the same intersection. <laughs> Save money on that uh, remote unit. It's too weird. And that brings me to something that I found interesting in the film that's almost like you, you sort of digress off the John Bonet rant, uh, yeah, the Jean Bonnet case to other things that you've done. One of them was Kill Yourself Incorporated. And that to me was fascinating because you're highlighting the absurdity 
of the juxtaposition of gathering news. Can you talk a little bit about Kill Yourself Incorporated? Yeah, that was a project with a friend that we were just, we were so kind of up in arms with Nike and just do it. And all of this like self-help, self-help advice and billboards, you know, do this. This is what's important, you know? And like, it's like, are people really not thinking for themselves that they're going to just do it or whatever? <laughs> right. By, you know, everyone's wearing the Nike logo, so it works. So and this was about when? So this was like mid nineties, I okay. guess. Yeah. Uh, that feels about right with the Nike sort of ubiquity at its right. height. Yeah. Yeah. Nike ubiquity. And so we were like the, the most obvious extension of telling somebody to do something absurd <laughs> is to say, kill yourself. Right. Because first of all, if, I mean, suicide is there again, suicide is serious mm-hmm. and it's something that someone does themselves for their own self, self slash selfish reasons or whatever. So if you tell someone to kill himself, like that is ridiculous, right? right? Like, and, and, and if anyone reacts and says like, I'm not going to kill, you can't tell me to kill myself. Like that's exactly, that's the reaction. It's like no shit. Yeah. No shit. But the, but parents who a kid gets the t-shirt or the catalog, they get, they're super scared because they don't, they're out of touch or whatever mm-hmm. with their kids. And so it's like, my, my child got your, and we have all these voicemails. I should put it back online because it was really all these voicemails from angry parents. My child got your catalog. This is awful. You're trying to promote suicide. And it's like, no, 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 no. We're not promoting suicide. We're promoting the ridiculousness of outward media and advertising. It's satire. And, yeah, it's it, satire. I mean, it's essentially a modern version of Jonathan Swift. Telling peasants to feed their babies to the rich. Right. You know, it's like, no, we're not actually advocating for this, you maroon. What we're doing is we're highlighting just the absurdity of the messaging that would lead someone, although absurd, to its logical endpoint. Right. Right? I mean... Yeah. So it's the farthest extension of just do it. And and, and the t-shirts, too. I mean, some just say kill yourself. Yeah. Um, But other ones, it says, like, cancel your next birthday. And (laughs) why put off dying young until it's too late? (laughs) <laughs> and um kill yourself let god sort them out it's <laughs> like obviously that's just like we're just like messing with stuff right, right. Like, that doesn't make any sense it's like but um it reminds me yeah. of the movie heathers in a lot of yeah, ways yeah yeah i mean you know teen suicide don't do it um which is like the hit song but kids start killing themselves to be popular yeah. again it's satire but not everyone gets it which is so weird and so frustrating yeah it's it's and and, and that's part i mean that's very part of pop culture too and like the, you know there's a japanese movie about like all the kids are killing themselves c- to be popular and stuff. <laughs> right. it's like wait you realize that that's not going to make you popular because you're going to be dead right and like it's like <laughs> but hopefully those kinds of things bring people back but when we were on the news we were on channel seven channel nine mm-hmm. um big exposés you know go yourself selling suicide to teenagers and so then they give they show they show people like parents whose kid has died and they're like this is just awful this is you know and it's like that's a very loaded thing of, and then they yeah. take it to a psychologist and then they talk to a teenager you know and it's like it's very i mean that's that's great for us you know well sure and in, in on the part of the news gathering organization, it's a little bit intellectually dishonest too. Oh yeah, I mean they when they came and interviewed us, they're like, yeah, this is cool. Show us what you got, you know. And oh then, sure. And they were very chummy because it was like it seemed they seemed legitimately like interested. But of course, when the piece comes out, it's very yeah. slanted and stuff. But and and as I say in the movie, I mean that's that's fair. Like we're I'm putting myself out there. 
you can interpret it how you want as media. Mm -hmm. That's what you do. That's what media (laughs) is, you know, but hopefully, I mean, especially nowadays with, you know, social media and, and just everyone's right and ability to put out their own information, you can very much find the other side of the story. Right. You see something on the news, you go right to the webpage of the killyourself.com or whatever, and it's like it's very it becomes very obvious to most people at least that one would this hope. is satire and this is it. this is actually a commentary on the people who are angry about it. So Well it's like I had a boss at one point who we were talking about news and I worked for a corporation, so very conservative in its sort of understanding of the world. And we were talking about liberal editorial boards versus more conservative ones. And that's not that hard to suss out. You know, a newspaper takes a position in its editorial board. Sometimes they lean conservative. Sometimes they lean liberal. And so we're discussing the difference. And he goes, yeah, let's avoid the super liberal ones like The Onion. And I go, you realize that's satire, right? <laughs> like that, they're not actually advocating, you know, like abortion super centers <laughs> or things like that. Like it's satire. And he had a little bit of egg on his face because I don't think he knew that. Right. He saw it as just this liberal paper that he's clearly just ignored. Yeah. So he doesn't even realize. And that's uh, a little bit terrifying, though. That Um, is. It it reminds me of on Facebook, too. Sometimes people will share, like, don't flash your high beams at cars with, uh, you know, with no lights on because that's gang initiation and they're going to kill you. And I go, this is such nonsense. (laughs) I've been hearing this since I was 11. Yeah. Uh, And you, you have people who, and thankfully, Facebook, there will be people who immediately post a link to Snopes, right? which is really good. And so that's sort of what you're driving at. But it's getting harder and harder to tell the difference now. And I think that's because what I was getting to earlier, the juxtaposition of the way the news is filtered to us. There's a story about people who have died or people who are killing each other. And then the next thing, it's about a new panda being born at the zoo. And your brain can't necessarily go from one to the other it's too hard to process yeah and it's almost like oh let's just think about the easier one that that panda's <laughs> cute you know yeah it's, yeah and i mean we are in a reactionary time fake news all this stuff everything is so like you don't know what to believe yeah so it's like either you believe everything or you believe nothing and yeah you just go to the baby panda because that's you know because <laughs> it's like i can see that and that doesn't make me just feel sick all over yeah which i don't know is weird but uh it's funny seeing all these old news clips because one of the things that comes up is you're a collector of tons and tons of things. And you have the old news recordings from when the Jean Bonnet thing was hot 20 years ago. I'm interested in why are you saving old news clips from uh, TV shows that are 20 years old? Man, I, I mean, it's part of the fact that I save everything. Yeah. But, but And I really don't, right? Like there's, you know, there's a million things I don't collect. Uh, but... I mean, I, I lived a few blocks away in Boulder at that time. And I mean, I was very much grew up in the VHS culture. Yeah. I was, I, you know, I always had two VCRs and I was like dubbing tapes and making like mixtapes for people and trading tapes of, of, you know, punk rock shows. And it mm. was very, I was very part of that culture. The I VHS. did that too, but with professional wrestling. Oh, okay. See, <laughs> see. And so I always had a VCR with a blank tape. Just anytime I'm watching TV. Because if something interesting comes on, I want to capture it. You know, it's part of my saving, you yeah. know, my, my collector mentality. Of like, if I saw a news piece that I wasn't recording, how am I going to remember it or whatever? Mm. So, like, I was always just ready. And plus, like, what if someone I know is on TV? I got, you know, I want to record it. And so, 
and I've been doing that for years. Yeah. So the, I mean, and the, when the John Bonet stuff, I was like fascinated with the news because of the way that they were reporting. And, you know, I was interested in the case too. Like, I mean, it wasn't, I wasn't so critical of it. Like, I can't believe what the news is going to do tonight. You know, it's like, yeah. I'm like, what's the news going to say? And like, I was a big fan of Natalie Pujot. Oh yeah. Who, um, I remember her. Yeah. She was like, she came on channel seven and she like shook it up and she's like, I'm going to stand in front of a screen, not, not sit behind with some papers. And she kind of broke a lot of ground, but like a lot of people didn't like it. Yeah. But of course now that's, they're always standing somewhere and it's, it's very, you know, multimedia. Yeah. She was too, she's still a little too far ahead of her time, but I really liked her. So I was recording just when she talked about whatever, <laughs> just cause it was like a paradigm shift. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And I, and, and p- the fact that people hated it, I, I mean, I gravitate towards things that the general populace doesn't like. Right. So, well, and they're going to come around eventually when, when you're yeah. on the leading edge, culture tends to hate things initially and it almost always comes around. Yeah. Uh, depending, but. But yeah, so that said, with, I mean, when the John Bonet stuff, I was recording the news all the time, you know? And, and I mean, I have thousands of tapes of all sorts of things I record. Or like, I have a, like a lot of partial movies, like, you know, late night Chicago cable TV or whatever, you know? And, and it's like, you see some weird movie, I start recording you know, watch the end of the movie. So I, I've seen like a lot of like second halves of movies and I have tapes with like second <laughs> halves of movies. Cause it's like, I, I was flipping channels and found something to watch. And, and you found a compelling. Yeah. So it's, it's like, do you go back and watch these tapes of this random I, stuff that you have? Not, not so much anymore, but there was definitely, I mean, I had, uh, you know, living in Boulder too. I had, uh, mm. People come over and just, I would just literally have stacks of tapes. I'd be like, oh yeah, this, this, watch this, you know, like, uh, putting in tapes, fast forwarding. And it was just people watching me, uh, watch videotapes, which I've actually, um, pitched as a, as an idea for like a movie night at like the film center or somewhere. <laughs> really? I was just like, I'm going to bring my VCR and a bunch of tapes that are kind of queued up for whatever, but I'm just going to show people my old tapes. Cause, cause I did that for years. People would come over. And we would just watch messed up weird stuff. You just know? whatever was on. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, if you think about it, that's like an analog YouTube. Oh yeah. I was, yeah, I was like, yeah, I was the forefather of like clips, you yeah. know, like, and, um, the, do you know the found footage festival? Yeah. Guys, those guys, I went to their thing and I'm like, oh my God, you guys in like, we're kindred spirits. Oh here, yeah. You know, you're my and, people. And when they, fir- when they first, the first time they came to Denver, people were like, you got to meet this guy, this guy. And like they, I met them. And then after the show, they came over till three in the morning and I was showing them tapes and they're like, okay, we need copies of all of this. First of all, <laughs> um, second of all, what else do you have? And they, um, I was sending them stuff and a lot of my stuff got into their later shows. Wow. And they even, um, they brought me up on stage on one of their shows and they, they even on one of their shows, like two shows after that, they had a thing called like Andrew's Corner or something. Mm-hmm. It was just stuff that I had given them. And then the, when I had the big art show in Lakewood of all my stuff, they were in town. That was there for three months. So they were, they were in town during that and they, they were like seeing some of the VHS stuff that was in the art show and they're like, you didn't show us this. What's this? Give <laughs> us a copy. They were right, gave me a list of stuff to make copies for. So. Wow. Yeah, but that, it's something about that VHS culture. You know, I, I wasn't really big into music mixed tapes. Okay. Cause I kind of, I, I, I liked like the album, you know, like mm-hmm. I don't want to listen to the one clash song. I want to listen to the album. Yeah. So mixtapes were kind of weird. It was like the radio to me. Like I want to get in, into a band. But on the other hand, VHS, I was like, I want to see five seconds of something and then 20 seconds of the next thing and yeah. keep going. Well, I mean, that that seems like how people consume YouTube now. You're just way ahead of it. I mean, there are times where I'm on YouTube. I'm like, 
I wonder if someone has uploaded the uh, opening credits to Mr. Belvedere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and sure enough, they have, <laughs> probably, and, right? Yeah, I'll go look at it, and then like you see what's related, and you go, oh, wow, it's that episode of Family Matters where Carl and Steve have evil alter egos <laughs> called Carl's Bad and Steve-el. Oh, my God. And like technology has made those connections easier to make, but there's, there's a certain level of charm to what you're describing. And when I ask you, like, why are you saving this, it's almost like, why not? Because it's there and you never know what you're going to need or what you're going to want. And, uh, in terms of the, the stuff that you collect, there's, I mean, in the film you list, you have like clown memorabilia. And, uh, what are some of the other things? Um, like toys and games from yeah. the sixties. Yeah, like board 80s, games. Board games. Right. Lots of just weird bric-a-brac from thrift stores. Yeah. You know, just like, oh, this, there's this little fun, um, you know, the thing that someone glued to a board with some fake bushes or whatever. It's like, that's amazing, you know? Um, a lot of thrift store art I really like. Nice. You know, okay. like paintings by unknown people, right? It's yeah. just like someone painted this. Somehow it's at a thrift store. It's not good art, but it's an amazing painting, you know? It's yeah. like, I, I'm like, this is, this is someone's, maybe it's the first painting they ever painted and the only painting they ever painted, you know? There's like a story in there. That like that that cannot be told anymore. Yeah, you which just don't know it. That's fascinating to me. Yeah. How much real estate is this taking up in your house? Like this stuff. Oh, I'd say most of it. <laughs> most yeah. of your house. We'll put it this way. I mean, I moved about a year ago. Uh-huh. Oh, Actually, more Jesus. than a year ago. Which it, what was that? It, it like? took so long to pack. I mean, it's ridiculous. And I have not even unpacked. Oh wow! Okay. I have like a lot of boxes in a lot of rooms, and I actually I uh, got like a several bedroom house, and each room has a theme. <laughs> okay. And so it's they've been painted, but I haven't un. It's just too big of a job. It's going to take me years to unpack, <laughs> so I haven't even started. I've been working on the movie too for like well, the last sure, year, yeah. so free time is is scarce. But that almost and I'm not quite as type A as like my parents, but I think about people who. Their house is like spotless and impeccable and it looks like a show home and, you know, it's very Spartan. I think some people hearing that would have a panic attack thinking about it. Oh, yeah. Do you ever encounter that? Oh, yeah. People are just like, oh, no, I can't even – this is, you know, it's too too much much or whatever. (laughs) But that said, too, I find it interesting. Like I can have just, you know, floor to ceiling, wall to wall stuff and you really stop noticing it at some point. Mm. You really – I mean because it's your landscape. And same with your commute, right? Like, Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like there's some things you – it's like, wow, I haven't noticed that in like months. And so – I think in in and so for me it's really interesting when someone comes over and they pick up something off a shelf they're like, oh my god, what is this? And it's like, oh yeah, that. And I get all <laughs> excited about it again because I haven't really seen it in a while. Yeah. And I think that's just part of, you know, something becomes kind of part of your your background, your landscape. But I love to see what people, what's the thing that makes them jump yeah. off the shelf. And when I go to someone's house, I'm just like, it's a, it's I I love looking at their fridge, like all the whatever's. T- taped to their fridge or whatever. I mean, that's fascinating. Yeah. Um, what kind of, uh, you know, what kind of coffee mugs do they have or what? I mean, just like, I just like to see how people represent themselves, what they like. But I don't know if people would really admit that this, whatever this mod, mid mod furniture they love so much. Do they even see it every day? I don't think they do. <laughs> I think they've, they've, you know, they've, it just, it blends into the landscape. Yeah. What's funny is I love having some things in my house that I think are too stupid to exist. Uh, and it's it's almost like what you're describing. I went to the to a punk rock flea market. They do those from time to time. We went to the holiday one, and I bought a or my wife technically bought it for me for Christmas. It's uh, a quote that someone had cross stitched and put into a frame, 
that was a line from a DMX song. <laughs> and I thought, who would take the time to cross-stitch a DMX quote and then put it in a frame? I have to have this in my house. That's that so. you, you got to come over, man. When I unpack, because <laughs> like, that's like 80% of my stuff is stuff that's like, I can't believe this exists. Yeah. I got to have it. I got to save it. I got to make sure that the world knows that this exists. This it's weird too thing. weird. Yeah. And so, yeah, you got to have it. Do you have something or some things, and this is a sideways way of asking you, is the Jean Bonnet tricycle like the crown jewel? Is there a crown jewel? Do, do you think of it that way? I mean, do you have a hierarchy? Man, there, I don't have a total hierarchy, although with the art show of my stuff and people coming over and the things that people gravitate towards, I think that they're probably... In the back of my mind, there probably is, mm -hmm. but I'm too like focused in the moment. Probably, like okay. if I get like the the Dukes of Hazard game that <laughs> yeah. I don't have or whatever, I'm just like I look at all the cards on the the board and th and I'm not even playing the game, right. but I'm just like I like the art and the weird drawings and these or like dolls of celebrities, you know, like the William Shatner doll. It's like. <laughs> from star trek like that does not look like anybody you know or some of the dolls actually do but um so i think like whatever i'm looking at at the time kind of is the crown jewel mm. in this in the collecting sense or in just in my kind of visual vernacular of you know it's like whatever i'm looking at is like what i want to see but i'd say I mean, as far as like making a movie like the tricycle is, is way in there and i didn't oh, even tell anyone i had it for X number of years because it's like this, you know, unsolved murder and like they, they would, yeah. you know, they're just throwing out like a giant net because they, you know, the, the I mean, the cops, I think, had pretty good idea who they thought did it. Mm -hmm. But then the DA was more on the school of like, we're not taking this to trial unless you have something definitive. So mm -hmm. you got to go interview everybody. So they, they had to do this due diligence. And they, you know, they did DNA tests of hundreds of people, you yeah, know, it's yeah. like, even though they, you know, they were pretty clear, they, there was this suspicion on the family, but there's all these other weirdos too. It's like, well, <laughs> they could have done it, you know? And then, and then we find out late recently that all that's DNA is totally pointless, you know? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, all those people who were exonerated from DNA are, you know, there's, they should still be suspect in that, <laughs> Probably. In that case. So... I have to ask this question, even though it is in uh, in the film. I I know anyone listening is dying to know how you came in possession of Jean Bonnet's tricycle. <laughs> Ironically, that's the one question that we can't really answer. Right? Really? Yeah. I mean, legally, legally, I can't really say. Okay. You know, and it's like, and that's I mean, you awkward. do address it. I address it, and I mean, I did discover it. Yeah. But like, how I actually came. To be in my possession is, it's, it's I can't explain it. You know, wow. it's like uh, I I talked to a lawyer and I was like, hey, how am I making this movie? And then like, he's like, don't make this movie. <laughs> you know, he was like, he's like, do you realize like the the world of like hurt you could be entering into yourself just by like putting this out there and like, you know, like the police they're not gonna like it because it's just more stuff and it's like it's more things about the case they never solved the right. da is not gonna like it the um the ramsey family is not gonna like it people in boulder are not gonna like you know it's like it's like there's all these reasons that you know it's just he's like why do you want to do this and i'm like because this is a really interesting story and he's like make a different movie and i'm like but this is the movie i'm you know and i've already like i've already mostly shot it so i'm like i'm not going back now or whatever yeah um but yeah there's some things i just can't really totally say 
Okay. You know? <laughs> Which is a shame. Yeah. Okay. So one more avenue of disclosure is a bridge too far is what you're telling me. Right. Okay. Right. Well, okay. Suffice to say it is in the movie. It is an interesting story. And when you take it to the psychics and they don't know what it is or who it belongs to, their reaction – and I I have a certain level of skepticism with psychics as I think most people probably have a healthy skepticism about it because it's something that is largely unknowable. But their reaction is very telling. you know. And even if it's not – even if they don't know who it belongs to, I think the idea that you're bringing a trike that you want to understand more about – immediately puts people not necessarily on the defensive, but it makes them leery of, of what happened. Is that fair to characterize? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. You know, it's like I went to five psychics and they were very similar experiences. Like, first of all, I'm, I'm, I'm filming it. Right. And I'm like, I'm like, we're making a movie about like learning about, you know, trying to discover more about these objects. And Mm -hmm. so just tell us what you can about them. Yeah. And, and I would think like, that they would be skeptical or leery of like, what's this guy doing? But they didn't really seem like that to me. They felt, no. they just felt like I do my craft and like, I'm going to do it. I don't care if there's a camera. I to the best of my ability. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, we brought out the sock monkey and that was like this control, you know, yeah. kind of get people warmed up on camera too. Weren't sure if we were even going to use it in the movie. It was just like, I didn't want to have these, these hot items, um, to talk about without having something else. So the sock yeah. monkey, I think the candy canes actually yeah. from the front walk were actually, I mean, f- as far as what the psychic said was like, that was even more striking and interesting yeah. to me. You know, I was like, wow, like they're really, and yeah, I'm, and I'm, that one lady in particular yeah, was, was, she was like, she, it was almost like there was like an evil, like aura coming off it. Yeah. She was vi- like physically and visibly uncomfortable dealing with them. And yeah. that was striking to watch. Yeah. And, and yeah, I'm a skeptic. Right. And I, I really thought it was just going to be this debunking of psychics. I was like, <laughs> you know, take it to a psychic. They come up with whatever they don't know. They, if they can't tell what this object is, like what good are they with like my grandma's yeah, pocket watch or whatever, you know, yeah. it's like, so, so, but that said, I'm rooting for him, you know? And <laughs> like the, um, the guy who did the soundtrack, Adam Stone, yeah. he was just like, Every time they said something, I was like hoping it was going to be right. He was like, he's like, I don't believe in them at all. But he's like, I couldn't believe how, what they said and, and how much I was rooting for them, you know, to get it right. <laughs> so I think what we, I mean, what we, and we were trying to be very fair. If they said something that seemed right or if they said something that was like way off base, we gave them full credit for whatever. And the way that it was cut, I mean, thanks to my editor, he's great. Um, that whenever they agreed on something, you know, they all thought that sock monkey like had belonged to a boy. Yeah. And like they all said it. And so even though it was not correct as far as what we know from the sock monkey, but like they all agreed. And yeah. so even them agreeing is, is interesting. In it's noteworthy. Sense. Yeah. It's noteworthy in some sense. So yeah, I, it was way better than I thought like what was going to come out of the psychics. Do you think us, I, cause I found myself rooting for the psychics to be right too. I wanted them to be right. And I don't know why. Until you were describing it just now, I think because we don't know, we're hoping they can almost fill in the gap for us, yeah. right? It's like, because we want to know. And if we can go, if we can find another avenue to, to have some new level of knowledge about it, then that's like a relief. You know, that's like a cultural release valve. And it's like, if they can tell me something I don't know, I want to be optimistic that they can do it. Yeah. And so 
I think he's rooting for them because it's like, oh man, please tell me something that I can know and that I can feel better about in this unknowable and very tragic case. Yeah. Is that, I, I think that's right. And I mean, I'm from the school of like, you know, X files. I want to believe. Okay. Right? Like, yeah. I, I grew up watching project blue book. I know I'm dating myself, but it, my brother and I watched project blue book or whatever. And it was like, it was about the, the air force investigating, uh, supernatural or not supernatural per se, but, um, unidentified yeah. objects or whatever. And like, we wanted we wanted to see UFOs, like you know. And I'm still like you know, if I see something, it's like I hope this is a UFO. I don't believe there are aliens or psychics or um, ghosts, ghosts, you yeah. know. And like people will have a ghost story, and like I, I'm I'm interested to listen to it. But there's no possible way I'm going to believe <laughs> right. in ghosts from someone else's story. Mm-hmm. Like I believe that they believe in that ghost, but like I would have to see it myself, you know. Yeah, and so. But they're trying to convince you, like, no, I saw a ghost. Just be- you got to believe me, and like, you'll believe in ghosts now. I was like, I'll believe in ghosts when I see one. But, but that's, I mean, but that's it. I'm fascinated by it. So yeah, if a psychic could tell me something that maybe is true, and the one psychic Jude, who she she was feeling, she got hit, but in the back of the head, yeah. on the same side that Jambonet got bludgeoned on the head, like yeah. the, I mean, I was like, this is crazy. And she, and but so she, I mean, she has a lot of credibility with getting things right. But then she thinks it wasn't the Ramsey family. Yeah. And she had all these details that pointed to this uh, junkyard guy, pretty much, and his friend. And I'm just like, she, that, this is crazy. Like, You're like, how can that be? Yeah. Like, how can that be? And, but, you know, all of these, all of these suspects, including the family, have all this circumstantial evidence. Yeah. And like, if you look at something hard and long enough, you know, they, they could probably find evidence of me, you, and the kid who wasn't even born yet. Right. You know, it's like, you know, cause, cause, and that, and that's, and that's how a lot of people get out of being convicted of crimes, right? Because right. you get these like rich lawyers or rich people with, uh, with fancy lawyers and like, you know, you, you need to have something beyond a reasonable doubt. Like you can prove anything, you know, you can prove the moon landing doesn't exist beyond a reasonable doubt. You know, you, if you add any doubt at all, right. It's not convictable. So I, yeah, it's hard to, hard to pin this one. It's weird, man. And I am fascinated by a theme that gets brought up. I think it's towards the end of the movie, but it's tragedy is pop culture, you know, real life tragedy. And you think about one of the big TV events last year was, you know, OJ, like retelling the OJ story, which happened very similar uh, time frame as yeah. this. And, you know, at, at some point, it's almost like it becomes too much to deal with when you think about the reality that you have to make it a part of pop culture, which is often viewed as disposable. I, I don't know what that says, but there's there's a theorist, and I don't want to nerd this up too much, named Kenneth Burke, who talks about equipment for living. And by putting things, and I think uh, one of your interview subjects says, by putting things almost behind glass and making them pop culture, it allows us to deal with it and deal with our own mortality. Yeah. Which is a fascinating thing that, that comes up here. And I think about millennials who weren't born yet for 9-11, but they make a lot of 9-11 jokes. Right. Like kids in high school, because they've heard so much about it constantly that they're flattening out the entire narrative and turning it into something that is almost parody and satire because it's incomprehensible that 9-11 could happen, that a star football player could murder his wife, that someone could murder this beautiful six-year-old little girl. That's incomprehensible. And so by putting it in a pop culture or putting it through a pop culture lens, it allows your brain to almost process it. 
Yeah. And so I, I think to that end, this documentary was enormously helpful for me because it's something that I had largely tuned out. And when I saw the title, I go, nope, not going to be into that. But I watched it and I go, okay, I feel a lot better now. And that's really strange. Yeah, that is, that is strange, but it's also, yeah, I think that's, that's great because I think it's, I mean, it's not more of the same. It's no, like this story not at all. is still a big story and people are watching all this stuff. Um, there's Facebook groups with everyone, you know, yeah. like arguing the theories, but it's like, I just, I, how it ended up and it really ended up, it was it ended up much more vast than I thought to begin yeah. with. So I, I'm really excited about how it came but you out. You did a great job of synthesizing all of it. Because there was so much there that I had forgotten and getting it all sort of understanding the Santa Claus thing and the, the junkyard guy. And I go, wow, there's so much here that I had forgotten. It's nice to have it all in one place again. Yeah. And you have to tell the story to, to refresh it in everyone's mind. But like when CBS did their two night or three night special or whatever, and they, you know, they, they built a soundstage that looks <laughs> like the house and they're investigating, they're investigating the murder in the room. <laughs> Where she got murdered that they built in a warehouse. You know, it's like, look at how the angle of this corner and the window. It's like, you guys built, I mean, it's so weird. And they even climbed in the window and stuff like, oh, we made it in the window without getting cut by the glass. And it's like, this is crazy. It is crazy. And, and they obviously had an agenda. You know, they, they, well, they, they, they very pointed towards the family, particularly the brother in the end to the case of even getting a, a lawsuit, you know. Right. Um, and, and I mean, for me, it's like, I'm not trying to solve the case really. And I'm not trying to, um, sway someone in some direction. Yeah. I'm just trying to point out like the kind of ludicrousness of it that we are all inc- very much including myself <laughs> a part of. So, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, in a lot of ways we're complicit in it yeah which, which is weird uh i was thinking about something else and one of your inter- interview subjects talked about that he's happy there are people like you working sort of half in the art world and half figuring this stuff out and i was thinking about the value in doing it in that way and i thought about there's been documentaries about kids in high school since the beginning of time since there was film and there was high school right there's been an exploration of that. The most accurate representation of high school that I think I've ever watched was the fictional movie Superbad. Uh-huh. Like, I, I, those characters resonated with me. That was indicative of my high school experience, but that was fictionalized. You know? So having, uh, having a lens that is not entirely journalistic almost helps us understand ways that, that we think we want the journalistic side. But in some ways, the fictionalization or the pop culturization of it helps us understand it in a way that we wouldn't have otherwise. Do you agree with yeah, that? Oh, I agree wholeheartedly. You see, I couldn't have said it better. I mean, that's just, that's, that's the world I live in. Right? Yeah. And it's like things resonating and just putting something out there as I do with, even with photography or whatever. Yeah. It's like, it's like, it's, it's not totally expected. And so it makes people kind of wonder, or, you know, if I have an art show and it's like people covered in human blood. Right. Yeah. And it's like, I'm like, this, this could be like wild, right? <laughs> and, and I'm thinking of it like I did it because I wanted to see what is, what does human blood look like? Like, yeah. because we see blood in our culture and like, you know, you watch CSI and they're cracking open someone's <laughs> chest on the autopsy table and peeling, peeling the skin back and all the zombie movies and stuff. Yeah. It's like, it looks so real. And like, even you go down to Denver zombie crawl, it's like really impressive. Like the stuff that people come up with. So. I was wondering, like, is real blood doesn't even look real? You know, mm. would it be like orangey and like, oh yeah, that's kind of a hack job that you need better stage <laughs> blood. Or but this is real blood. But my, to my enjoyment, like it actually did look 
bloody and good and it congealed and the pictures just got better and better as it got, you know, but, and some people saw the art show and didn't realize it was human blood until later. And then they had to go back and look at it again. And then they were kind of horrified by it or whatever. So I think just the examination and then the second round of examination, a lot yeah. of things I do have that kind of second layer um, to get the reaction and then prove away from that reaction. Yeah. And I, and I've, I mean, I've lived my life like that being like the, the oddball kid and, you know, the new wave kid and, and the, the very, um, suburban high school and like getting picked on and, you know, right. but I was like a, like a straight A student, you know, and the teachers come in and like, you know, my brother was like a not great student. And so it's like, Oh, another one of these, you know, this clan or whatever, this family. Right. And, um, and then I'm like, I, I get like straight A's, you know, and right. it's like, Oh, the weird punk rock kid or whatever, like another troublemaker. And it's like, Oh wait, but he's like a really good student. So I'm, I'm always, I think I've always been trying to do that, like bring it back around. Yeah. You know, judge the book by its cover because you're going to anyhow, but then you're going to be disproven time and time again. So. Subvert expectations wherever you can. Oh, for sure. Always for keep always. them guessing. Yeah, for sure. I'm with you 100%. <laughs> to that end, and I hope you find this comparison flattering. This documentary reminded me the way I felt after watching it. Reminded me of the way I felt after watching Exit Through the Gift Shop. Oh wow! Yeah, have you seen that? Yeah, uh, I, I I think I started watching that when it ended. I just started watching it a second time. Oh yeah, because it was literally. I mean, it's a it's a Mobius strip of <laughs> you know like what your goes on in your mind. And I started researching it and like, is this real? Is this yeah. Banksy? Is this what you know? It's like what who who. Is in charge of this. Is Who he, made up this guy? Yeah, like, did, you know? did he invent Mr. Brainwash? Like, yeah. And you don't know. Like, yeah. it's, it's, it's almost unknowable, but it beckons a second watching as I think this one does. So uh, yeah. kudos to you. Oh, cool. Thanks. Yeah. That, I mean, I, I was fascinated with that movie because it really takes you for a ride. It really does. Uh, as does this one. So we need to wrap up, uh, Jean Bonnet's tricycle, Denver Film Festival. Where can people see it? Uh, this is, we're recording this on like a Tuesday. Is it playing some more at Denver Film Fest? Yeah, so it hasn't actually premiered yet. It oh, starts great. on okay. Saturday, eleven eleven at four. Okay, at the pavilions downtown, and then it and plays this will again. go up before then. So okay, and then Sunday at two at the pavilions, and then um, you know I've submitted to a lot, a lot of festivals as every filmmaker. Like <laughs> I hope it gets awesome distribution, and someone gives me a million dollars, and it gets shown <laughs> on every movie screen in the world. Sure. But that said. I mean, there will be ways to see it regardless, you know. Awesome. As a self-promoter, I will make sure that there's a lot of ways for people to see it. Well, I'll tell you what. I will uh, link to the website. Uh, is, is there a website? like JohnBenetsTricycle.com. JohnBenetsTricycle.com. <laughs> That'll be in the companion blog piece at JohnOfAllTrades.us. Andrew, this was uh, an enormous pleasure. Uh, I found the film fascinating. I think you do great work, and uh, I wish you continued success. Awesome. Thanks, man. This has been fun. That'll do it for episode 153 of the John of All Trades podcast. Thank you, Andrew Novick, for being on my show, for sitting down with me, and for giving us even further insight into your documentary, Jean Bonnet's Tricycle. Check out all the appropriate links where you can stay up with Andrew, John Bonnet's Tricycle, and everything else at johnofalltrades.us. We're also on the social media, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest. J-O-A-T pod is the handle for all of them. Pay some love to our sponsor, 4 Degrees, the number 4, D-E-G-R-E. Yes. If you're hosting a website, if you're building a website, if you're doing social media marketing, digital advertising, no matter what you're trying to achieve, if you need to get in front of people, 4 Degrees will help you do it very effectively, very efficiently, and at a great price. The number 4, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. 
The John of All Trades podcast is a production of Deft Communications. Check out Deft on the web, D-E-F-T-C-O-M dot U-S. And I'm back here in two days. That's right. Got another show coming from Denver Film Fest 40. We're doing a special Happy Friday show, and I guarantee you will have a smile on your face if you listen to episode 154. 153, fabulous. Love talking to Andrew Novick. 154, going to be at least as good as that. So check it out here. And until I hear you again, say goodnight, Gracie. That's good, Johnny. The John of All Trades podcast is a part of the Denver Podcast Network. In the shadow of the mountains, we speak.